Seth Markham, and this is the FEMA Podcast. I'm recording this from the FEMA Podcast Studio, also known as my bedroom, because like many of you, I can't go into the office due to the coronavirus pandemic. May 18th of this year marks the 40th anniversary of the Mount St. Helens volcanic eruption. To this day, it remains the most destructive in U.S. history. In remembrance of this event, I talked with volcanologist Chris Jonians Trisler, who recounts the event and shares her expertise and experiences of living near and working on the mountain. I also had a chance to speak with Jay LaPlante and Elaine Ike, who shared their memories of the experience. And as you'll hear, there are many similarities in the aftermath to what we're experiencing now with the current pandemic. We'll start off with Chris. I'm Chris Jonians Trisler, and I retired from the Federal Emergency Management Agency about a year ago, after 27 years of running the Region 10 Earthquake Volcano Tsunami Program. Prior to that, I was a research scientist at the University of Washington Geophysics Seismology Lab for 11 years. In previous conversations, you've referred to yourself as a volcanologist. What is a volcanologist? A volcanologist studies various volcano phenomena, such as lava, magma. Uh, They also study other geological, geophysical, and geochemical data to understand the volcano's past behavior and forecast its future behavior. Um, This understanding can be used for purposes of providing risk assessments to plan, prepare, mitigate, and respond to hazards in the nearby communities. How did you get involved in this line of work? Uh, The interest was there as a young kid. I was probably seven or eight years old when my dad uh, started showing me rocks, taking me on rock hunts and talking about the volcanoes. And we spent an awful lot of time picnicking and camping at Mount Rainier. And then I hiked and backpacked up there through the years and the other volcanoes and in the mountains. And I was a geology student in 1980 at the University of Washington when Mount St. Helens became active again. I had been thinking when I went back to school of working in the oil fields. I had a couple of fellow women geologists that were successful at that. But the moment that Mount St. Helens started to go active again in March of 1980, um, I changed my mind in a heartbeat. Uh, Something inside of me said, that's really what you want to do. So you were a geology student around the time the mountain started showing signs of activity. Can you go into a little more detail as to your involvement? Um, I wasn't working at the seismology lab yet when the mountain erupted, but I had a, a TA, a teaching assistant, that had a project at the mountain that I went down and helped with after the May 18th eruption. It felt very eerie. I remember the first trip down there. It was overcast, and we were climbing over down timber on a ridge in line with the mountain. We couldn't see the mountain because of the overcast, and it felt eerie knowing what it had done in being down there and occasionally hearing some rumbling or thinking that's what I was hearing (laughs) and uh, not being able to see it. But the mountain erupted six more times in 1980 and the following months, and more staff was required at the lab. So I was asked if I wanted to apply for a job there, and I accepted. Taking that job, it, it, it was amazing. It led to a lifetime of studying volcanoes and working with responders and introduced me to Kilauea in 1987. And uh, um, I guess I'd say in short, I really fell in love as all volcanologists do. 
So it sounds like there was a whole lot of excitement and activity in the scientific community at the time. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. Rewind to that pre-May 18th activity. There, there was a series of smaller volcanic activities um, that began in March. Local scientists began to look, and I'm sure hope that something interesting was going to happen, on March 16th. There were some small earthquakes that began after 123 years of quiet at Mount St. Helens. Uh, On March 20th, there was a magnitude 4.2 earthquake, and people scrambled to take seismometers out to the mountain to record the earthquake activity in more detail. There were more instruments put in in different locations around the mountain so that we could get a better look at what was going on at that point. Was there any monitoring done on the mountain prior to then? Yeah, there there was some monitoring. There was at least an instrument at many of the Cascade volcanoes in Washington and Oregon and Northern California, but the network really got beefed up with uh, seismometers all around the mountain at that point. So this was a big deal in the scientific community at the time. They weren't just like, oh, this is another earthquake. They knew something was going on. Well, if you're in the business of of studying this, um, the interest is there. Just what's going to happen? And, you know, do we have some ideas about how it's going to happen? And then, of course, after things happen, it's what are the lessons learned? What did we learn? What can we use in the next possible activity of the next Cascade Volcano. One of the things that was instrumental was that seismometer. And the seismometer, uh, it's about the size of a pop can, and it's buried in the ground, and cables come out. There is a mass suspended inside that seismometer so that when the ground shakes, the motion in that instrument is then transmitted back to where you have your seismographs. And this vibration is translated into, (laughs) good scientific term, a squiggle. And the shape of that squiggle, the frequency, you learn to read that. It's really like reading a book. Um, I had a visiting scientist uh, consult a colleague of mine down at uh, Cascade Volcano Observatory one time walking out. She heard him say, she can't tell all that from those seismograms. (laughs) Yes, she could. And I could. They're they're easy to read once you know what you're looking at. They're very distinctive. So that was part of it. And also other equipment went in that measured movement of spots on the mountain. Lasers were used to shoot at targets. And you could tell if the mountain was moving up or sinking down or spreading outwards. There were a lot of different ways that people were wanting to see what the mountain did. And putting all of these areas of expertise together began to tell a consistent story. I have to say, all the study at Mount St. Helens led to the local USGS people that were involved at the time uh, becoming experts and jumping in and helping with other volcanic eruptions around the world to this day. By April 1st, scientists had developed some potential scenarios uh, from minor to major, and based on reports from 1975 and 1978, done just, you know, the last one a couple of years previously, people had an idea what might happen. From there, the local emergency managers and the state emergency managers needed that kind of information to develop plans to reduce potential risk by restricting the most hazardous parts of the mountain to various groups. 
that mountain was logged. There were a lot of cabins down there. There People recreated on the lake. There were a lot of activities down there that all of a sudden the question had to be asked, what do we need to restrict at this point? And then on May 18th, the mountain erupted drastically, changing everything. It was lucky that they had restricted a large part of the mountain at that point um, to loggers and cabin owners. It's lucky it was a Sunday because there weren't loggers on the mountain that day in the areas that that still people were being allowed to go. And it's lucky that the eruption occurred earlier in the morning at 8.32 a.m. because caravans of property owners had been allowed to go in on Saturday to check their property and homes, and another caravan was due to go in later that day on Sunday. So there was a lot of luck involved that we lost tens of people instead of hundreds or thousands. I wonder if you can describe the eruption a little bit. Where were you at, and what do you remember thinking? I slept through that eruption. I didn't know about it till later in the day. It did cause some personal panic uh, for about a day and a half because my parents' plan was to take a picnic lunch and go down and watch, you know, just in case something happened. It was pretty common for people to go down and sit somewhere to watch the mountain from outside of the restricted area. And um, we didn't hear from them all day and into the next day. Uh, finally, someone got a hold of them, and they weren't involved in that eruption. You did have interested people from the university in different places that wanted to be there when something happened. People that were to become friends and colleagues of mine, uh, other young geologists that already had volunteered for working at the lab before, before they got a job like I did, they were excited and hoping to see something. So people were parked around the mountain. We have some great eyewitness photos from these people that showed us what happened and what sequence it happened in. This is a podcast, so of course we can't show our listeners footage of the eruption, but I wonder if you could paint a picture of how it all played out. Well, during the time up to May 18th, particularly during April, it appeared that the mountain was bulging on one side, which turned out to be uh, magma was coming up from depth, and it was deforming the mountain on the north side. The teaching assistant I knew even talked about, I was out there on the bulge the other day, the ground is cracking, I don't want to go back, I don't feel comfortable standing on that anymore. On May 18th, it wasn't that the mountain necessarily was ready to erupt. It was a magnitude 5.1 earthquake that occurred at 8.32. Within seconds, probably about 10 seconds, it shook that bulge on the upper north flank loose. The first thing that happened was a huge debris avalanche was formed. The volume of that was 0.65 cubic miles. You want a picture of that, it could vary Washington, D.C. to a depth of 14 feet. Uh, it moved about 200 miles per hour, and it lasted about 10 minutes. The avalanche flowed out about 13 and a half miles. Um, it covered 24 square miles to an average depth of 150 feet. It triggered a, a, a sideways, a lateral blast. It sculpted a horseshoe 
shaped crater with the near vertical south wall of 2,000 feet high. And it removed about 1,300 feet of the summit of Mount St. Helens. The debris avalanche had released pressure on the hydrothermal and magma system. It was like taking a cork out of a champagne bottle. There was uh, instant expansion of high temperature and high pressure steam and gases. It began at about 220 miles per hour. So it overtook that 200 mile per hour avalanche. Then it continued to increase its speed. It was calculated that it moved as fast as 670 miles per hour. The temperature of that was 680 degrees Fahrenheit. It covered about 200 square miles. People that took pictures and were watching saw a vertical blast start to come up from the mountain too. The velocity of that upward blast was 60 miles per hour. So it rose 15 miles into the stratosphere in 15 minutes. It had a volume of 540 million tons in nine hours over 22,000 square miles. It extended out with the prevailing winds. Uh, the eruption occurred at 8.32, and at 9.45, an hour and 13 minutes later, uh, it started to drop out of the sky and fall onto Yakima, 85 miles out. The street lights there came on. It was darkness. Um, people were worried about this. Uh, was it toxic ash? You didn't want it in your lungs. It's shards of glass is what it was. Breathing volcanic ash is not a good thing. The winds carried it farther, though. It carried it out to Spokane, uh, which was about 247 miles away from the mountain. It got out there three hours and 13 minutes after the eruption started. By the next day, May 19th, there was ash in Montana, in the Great Plains, in New Mexico. That's about 900 miles away. Two days later, fine ash was passing over the northeast coast of the United States. It dissipated into the atmosphere and circled the globe within two weeks and continued to circle the globe many times. There was lightning associated with the eruption column. That's really common at volcanoes. It started hundreds of forest fires in the area, and I saw pictures of people who were climbing Mount Adams that morning. Their observations when the, when the eruption cloud reached Mount Adams was that they were getting electrical discharges in the form of fireballs off of their ice axes. And one person who had braces said they felt like their mouth was vibrating. I know mud flows were a significant part of this event, and perhaps something that most people don't associate with a volcanic eruption. Can you talk more about that? The water that existed in the melting snow began to form lahars, which is a type of mud flow. The hot material melted the snow and ice. Also in the flow was uh, logs from trees that had been broken off their trunks. There was uh, man-made debris in that. These flows uh, had a speed of up to 90 miles per hour. They formed in the first few minutes of the eruption. They went down all the creeks and rivers coming off the mountain. The lahars destroyed 200 homes or damaged them badly, and 27 bridges were destroyed. 45 miles away, it raised the Cowlitz River temperature to 90 degrees Fahrenheit. By the next day, the blocked deep water navigation channel of the Columbia River, 75 miles away, 
with volcanic sediment, raising the channel depth from 40 to 15 feet for two miles, disrupted river traffic and stopped ocean shipping temporarily. After all that, the economic losses, and these dollars are back then, uh, they're not converted to today's money, but the state of Washington, it cost them approximately $970 million uh, in economic loss. Uh, And then over the years, there were almost 20 more eruptions, the last one being in 2004. The mountain is only dormant, not dead. If it does what it's done in the past, it will eventually rebuild itself and go on with periodic activity. So it's been 40 years this year since the eruption. What has changed on the mountain since then, and how has the ecosystem recovered? Yeah, with the exception of the most devastated area around the crater and nearby, plants and animals begin to return fairly quickly in places. Um, We saw beavers in a small lake that had been hit by the blast north of the mountain and trees down all over and and that uh, people were killed near there. But we saw beavers, I would say, about two years after the eruption. They know that ground burrowing animals had a chance to survive and that the ash even protected them. The earliest plants that came back were nitrogen-fixing plants because plants need that. And fireweed is something that always comes back after a fire. Well, that was one of the first things that started popping up around Mount St. Helens, too. Beautiful purple flowers against the gray background. But now so much of the mountain is looking more and more recovered. The exceptions are the crater and the nearby areas. A couple years after the mountain erupted, several people at the lab got involved in testifying to a congressional committee that came out to Vancouver. And the issue was, should we turn part of that area into a national park or a national monument to preserve for scientific study and for the public to come and learn what volcanoes can do. And uh, that was fought by various commercial interests, uh, but a national monument in the end was designated around Mount St. Helens. And years later, Um, I I could tell one side of the monument from the other, the part that hadn't had this attention where logs were being salvaged yet and trees replanted there. That came back naturally and slow. And the other side of the monument, when I went there a few years ago, I could not really tell where the devastated area began. Um, At that point, a lot of the logs had been salvaged on the other side of the mountain and trees replanted. And, of course, it had a jump on coming back. So, But the opportunity to have a lab to study the volcano as time went on, um, the chance to learn from it, the chance for the public even now to go down and learn about volcanic activity would have been lost without that. It's really been an amazing time for me for my colleagues and friends. Um, We remain interested in volcanoes. And I would say to young people out there who want to study volcanoes, it is so scientifically interesting. It's an opportunity to contribute to society and it's a passion. It's something, it's a job you can love. 
Many thanks to Chris for spending time with us today and sharing her enthusiasm for Mount St. Helens. We now turn to Jay LaPlante, currently a tribal liaison with FEMA. Jay grew up in Browning, Montana, a town about 470 miles northeast of Mount St. Helens. He was a teenager at the time of the eruption and shares with us what he remembers about the experience. So my name is Jay LaPlante. I am a tribal liaison for FEMA Region 10. And my job is to support the 271 federally recognized tribes before, during, and after natural disasters. So just a week from today, May 18th, is the 40th anniversary of when Mount St. Helens blew. Uh, how old were you at the time, and, and where did you live when that happened? So when Mount St. Helens uh, erupted, I was 17 years old, and I was living in my hometown of Browning, Montana, on the Blackfeet Reservation, which is about 40 miles uh, south of the Canadian border and about 12 miles from Glacier National Park. What do you remember about the whole event? What I mostly remember is how dark it got and how hard it was to see anything. So where I come from, we're used to snowstorms and sometimes we get fog. And this was kind of like a mix between fog and snowstorm because you couldn't see very far and it seemed like snow was falling, but it wasn't snow, it was ash. And so you couldn't even see more than a block uh, ahead of you. Well, you guys, you started the day off and it was clear, right? Yes. And so the day that uh, Mount St. Helens blew was just a normal day. You know, the, the skies were clear. Uh, I was probably in school that day. I don't remember if, uh, if it was a school day. I do remember it getting dark. And I can't remember if it got dark because it was because the sun was going down or if it was because the ash came in so heavy. If it did come in during the day, it would have been so heavy that it would have blocked the sun out. Now, you're not able to see the mountain from that far away, so you couldn't see, like, the eruptive cloud coming out of the mountain or anything like that. You just saw ash floating through the sky. Right, and so uh, to the west of Browning is the Rocky Mountain front, uh, so those are the mountains that we see, and the ash would have come up and over the top of those mountains. And I was looking at the trajectory, uh, the ash from Mount St. Helens, went up over Yakima, Washington, up over Spokane, Washington. And you can see that's a direct path toward my hometown. So you say dump. How much ash did you guys get? We had enough ash land to make the cars seem kind of a muddy brown color. I don't really remember ash on the ground. I just remember poor visibility. So it was like really, really bad smog. It wasn't, you're not shoveling it. There's not feet of it. It's just kind of a, a dusting and it's fairly thick. Correct. It was kind of a light dusting, almost like a, a fog with a little bit of particle in it. Did it cause any issues? Uh, cars not running right or health issues or anything like that? I don't remember who but somebody did hand out masks and I did have them. I do remember wearing a mask and uh, driving around town because we were young. So we were driving around town and um, it didn't, it didn't like stop our car from running or anything like that. But uh, there were people all over town wearing masks and people who didn't have cars were walking around with masks on. What was kind of the feeling in town? Do you remember any of that? How did, how did people react to the eruption? 
when Mount St. Helens blew, my sister thought that the world was coming to an end. I think for the for most people, we knew that the the mountain had erupted and that that the ash was coming from there. But people probably thought all kinds of things, especially those that didn't have the news that a mountain had actually erupted. It was probably pretty scary to them. Finally, we hear from Elaine E.K. She's a former FEMA employee, and her son Ryan is a colleague of mine. Elaine, Ryan, and the rest of the E.K. family lived in Spokane, Washington at the time of the eruption. In this segment, Ryan talks with his mom and remembers the experiences they had during that time. Real quick, can you, what's your name? And can you tell me who who you are in relation to me? I'm Elaine E.K., and you are my youngest son. And at the time of uh, the disaster in Spokane, you were only four years old. Where were we growing up? Where were we uh, in 1980? Oh, we were in Spokane. And we lived uh, on 25th Avenue, and that was 25 blocks from the center of downtown Spokane. Well, I wanted to (laughs) chat with you about the Mount St. Helens uh, volcano eruption in 1980. We've been looking at the COVID-19 response and and wearing masks and being stuck at home and kids being out of school. And we got to thinking, uh, growing up in Spokane, what it was like in 1980 when that happened. So I wanted to get your thoughts on what you remember from that day and how that went for us as kids. Well, it's kind of interesting. The comparisons are interesting, but the differences are too. Um, Back in Spokane, we walked out onto the front porch of the Donin's house and we saw a black line. It wasn't gray. It was black. And we had no idea what it was. It wasn't like I was seeing clouds. It was like the horizon, on the horizon, there was this like blanket, this black blanket. And it was straight, straight across. There wasn't puffy like clouds are. And all of a sudden, we could tell it was getting closer and closer. We went in quickly to listen to the radio and uh, we couldn't find anything. So that's one of the differences is the news carried the event of the coronaviruses. Uh, it was not a visual presentation as as I saw in Spokane. Well, we, we couldn't imagine what this was. So uh, we immediately went home and uh, made sure that all the windows and doors were closed and things like that. I had agreed to take care of a couple of dogs at my, our friends Kevin and Barb's house. And um, so I immediately ran down there to make sure I could feed them. It was starting to to rain a little bit of uh, of that dust down. And uh, I got into the house and the dogs were totally hysterical. They, uh, <laughs> they cornered me in the bathroom for a little bit. Then I finally said, well... Okay, if I get bit, fine. But I told them they needed to settle down, and I was going to feed them and go home. And yeah. finally, they settled down. There's a lot of differences with the natural hazard and a volcano, yeah. and you can see yeah. it, the ash yeah. in the air, versus yeah. today where we know that there's something going on, but you can't see it. it was, was it easier? Do you remember to get the us as kids to behave differently or respond <laughs> safely with uh, being stuck inside or wearing masks? 
Well, all of that was kind of difficult because we didn't know what the ash could do to the lungs and our lungs as, as well as the kids. So the kids were banned from playing outside. That was an immediate thing. that The news said, don't let the kids play outside and wear masks. We had to make them and we made them from um, our uh, handkerchiefs and um, the dish towels. And we dampened them and uh, so that the ki- we could run the kids back and forth between our houses so they could play a little bit. So there was no inhibition to having them play. Each of us had a visiting teenager from the Dunin house because they were trying, you, being a big family being stuffed up in a house. Uh, and that was, you know, that was really hard on them. They wanted to come over and visit and take care of the kids. And they did that for several days. In the meantime, I had civil defense stuff that I needed to do. I needed to wash down all the ash and and get it uh, to the uh, sewer. And it was about four inches in some places, three, four inches. Just outside of Spokane, you know, up in Ritzfield, it was four feet tall, the ash was. So that was fairly substantial. And it was different consistency, of course, from snow. But it was shocking because it covered, all of the grass was covered. And it took a long time to get rid of that. You get... You know, it looked like everything was clean. And then, you know, like any kind of ash like that, it, it as soon as it dried, it was, everything was gray. You know, how how did the eruption affect us as a family? Mm-hmm. Um, what are your other memories of the, the effect of the actual eruption on, on our life and growing up oh, in the... Kids were told they could not go to school for... And it ended up being a two-week ban on school. And it was just was two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. Uh, of course, two weeks was well, from May 18th to two weeks. That was the end of school, right? It was. It was really uh, stunning uh, because it was so immediate. It was a beautiful spring day. It the flowers. The, that's what I remember so much. The tulips were just in full bloom, and they were gorgeous. And then all of a sudden, their little, little pods were full of ash, and they were bent over. And and that that, that almost made me want to cry. Yeah, and that happened immediately uh, because the airborne dust began to settle. On on the city uh, it, by by three o'clock in the afternoon, it was absolutely dark outside. Anything that was outside that was made of cloth was full of ash. Um, all of the all of the blooming things, and you know, spring is such a beautiful time of year. And here we are again in spring, sharing spring with uh, a vi- virus that we can't see. It's very different. The fact that we can't see this virus to be notified that you have to be careful. Back in Spokane, uh, we knew that the ash was swirling around, and it took a while before authorities confirmed that uh, as long as we were wearing um, masks to protect our lungs, that there wasn't any particular danger uh, for that. But we were worried about what the glass content 
uh, of that would do to the to our kids. So uh, I would go outside, but I wouldn't let the kids go outside. Were we uh, were we well behaved as kids when we were all cooped up in the house? <laughs> Actually, you were you weren't all that bad, and and the reason you weren't is that we had neighbor helping neighbor, and being able to change your location. Every day we would it would alternate where you would be to play and things like that. You'd come home for naps, but you know you would go over and play at Jean's every other day. Aaron would come over and play with you, and same with Adam and Chris. They would switch places. They'd play over at one house or the other, and then the Doneen kids. They were like the Pied Pipers. They were entertaining themselves, and they had all kinds of ideas for you guys to do. We were so lucky, and we we had friends to to help us where usually family would would be helping out. And of course, now it's kind of different because your friends and family help out as they can, but it's not the direct uh, contact that we kind of crave. But the feelings are very similar of what in the world is happening and how can this be? How can the changes occur like this? How can we imagine that something like this would uh, would contain our movements and uh, everyday contact with one another? Thank you very much, Mom. I appreciate the discussion yeah. and uh, yeah. thinking through all this stuff 40 years later. We've linked to this episode on our FEMA Facebook page, and we invite you to join us in the conversation in the comments. If you have ideas for a future topic, send us an email to fema-podcast at fema.dhs.gov. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit fema.gov forward slash podcast.